So please turn with me in your Bibles now to Matthew 25, and our church has been going through the gospel according to Matthew for what has been now almost three years. And we take breaks after there are big sections that are ended, and we're close to finishing a big section here. Uh, The section started in chapter 23 with Jesus talking very strong language to the religious leaders of his day. And then in chapters 24 and 25, he's talking to his disciples. And I'm going to read to you in just a minute a story. And this story has been uh, taught a lot in the Christian church. My guess is that if you've been around church for a little while, you've maybe heard this story. It's often called the parable of the talents. Unfortunately, it's one of those stories that just doesn't have a clear consensus as to what it's saying and why Jesus told it. So you you can hear anything from somebody reading this story and teaching it and saying, well, what this story is telling us is that if you want to go to heaven and you don't want to go to hell, then you need to really make sure that you use the talents that God gave you. And so if you're really good at singing, then sing for Jesus. And if you're really good at making money, then make money for Jesus. And if you're really good at dancing, then dance for Jesus, etc. It keeps going on. And if you don't, and you use those talents for yourself and you bury them in the ground, well then, weeping and gnashing of teeth is for you. Which very much sounds opposite of what our church believes about the gospel. Like the whole Bible is about God's grace, his generosity, his gift, not, well, work hard. And if you do a good job, God's going to be pleased and he's going to let you enter into his kingdom. This um, parable is sometimes not used to just talk about heaven or hell, but just said, uh, maybe this is about money. This is like Dave Ramsey 101. Do you guys know who Dave Ramsey is? He's like the financial guru, Christian guy that talks about how to manage your finances well. He's got a very popular radio show. And so this would be like a classic, see, the Bible teaches us how to do investments. That's what this story is about. Capitalism, American capitalism and Western investments. Jesus is basically teaching this. And so if you don't invest your money well, well, then you're a fool. And Jesus wants to make sure you're not a fool. And I could go on. I'm just scratching the surface of just some basic things people say about this. And there's so many different ways that people explain the talents. So today's message is going to be a bit unique in that way because of some of the confusion and just because Parables in and of themselves, I I feel like, have all kinds of baggage surrounding them. So we're going to do basically uh, part lecture, part sermon. And I don't typically like to do this, but I want to teach you how to read this text. And I'm going to give you steps and lessons for how to read your Bible. And it will apply not just to this passage, but it's going to apply to every time you read the Bible, no matter what. And I'm hopeful that that's going to be helpful and instructive. But here's the idea you're not going to be able to really take home today's message, the big idea, the application for what's going on in your life. You're not going to be able to do that very well if you don't know what's being said. So in general, if you're going to apply the Bible to your life, you need to know first what the Bible is actually saying. And like a doctor giving you a script for medicine, you want to make sure that it's the right medicine, correct? The wrong medicine could go really bad for you. you. You could die. And in the same way, Christians get bad teaching from the Bible, and it's the wrong medicine. 
And we're to be doctors of the soul and the word of God and how we rightly handle it matters a lot. And in this case, some people have heard what I'm about to read and they have been very seriously injured by that kind of teaching. So let's, let's remind ourselves the, the weight and the seriousness of what we're dealing with. I'm going to give you some medicine today and you need to know, is this the right medicine? Or is this, is this guy not really know what he's talking about? And if you've ever lost confidence in like a physician or a doctor, you might know what I mean. And, and I want you to hopefully have confidence that yes, this is what Jesus is saying. And then at the end, I'm going to preach it to you. So you're going to get a sermon in, but it's going to be a little bit of a lecture first. Let's read the story to make sure we're all familiar with it. It's chapter 25. It's verses 14 to 30. And it begins this way. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one, he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug it in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you have delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant! You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered no seed? Well, then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to one... For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So what we got are five steps. I'm going to give you your big idea, but you're going to have to stick with the lecture first. We're going to have to talk first about what what this passage is saying and learn how to read it. So I'm going to give you five steps. And in the middle of those, you're going to find out, okay, what is this passage really about? So first, step one, you're reading your Bible. First thing you should do is determine the genre. Here's the question you want to ask yourself. What am I reading? What is the genre? What kind of literature are you reading? The Bible is not just one book, although it is one book. It is a collection 
of books and letters and history and poetry. There's different genres. You have different rules when you're reading a comic strip versus an obituary when you pick up the newspaper. You know the newspaper has a collection of genres in it. And in the same way, the Bible is a collection. This is a parable. What do you know then about parables? How should you read parables? Well, a lot of people read them like Jesus is just an awesome sermon illustrator and this is just a great way to make a spiritual truth, which it's doing that, but not nearly, that's not enough. Many people think parables are earthly stories telling heavenly realities. But what we find out, especially as we studied Matthew chapter 13, is that parables are not always simple and straightforward. They both conceal the truth and reveal the truth. They take work and sometimes they aren't understood right away. So if you're reading this story and you think, oh, this is simple, it's just a simple little story about investments, then you're probably off on the wrong foot. That's not the genre of parables. That's question step one. What am I reading? You're reading a parable. Parables conceal and they reveal. They hide and they make plain and clear things about God, his people, and the world. Step two, after you have identified the genre, situate the context. So if you asked, what am I reading? Second question is, where am I reading? Where in the, the, the flow of this book called Matthew, the gospel according to Matthew, is this story of Jesus? And so you want to look at all these contextual clues. Say, for example, look at chapter 24 and then look at verse 14. For it will be like, that's how our story starts, for it will be like. And immediately you should be asking, what? It will be what like? What's the it referring to? And then you poke your eyes up and you see that it's a parable about the kingdom of heaven. Look at chapter 25, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like. And then he tells a story. And then he tells a second story. For it will also be like. Would be another way to translate this first phrase. So he's talking about the kingdom of heaven. So this is a parable. And it's a parable about the kingdom of heaven. And it is a parable that's in chapter 25, which is a part of what we call the Olivet Discourse. Because when you go back to chapter 24, you see in chapter 24, verse 1, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these? Do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, that's where we get the name Olivet Discourse. He's sitting on a Mount of Olives, not literally like a mountain of olives, but that's what it's called, the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him and they asked a question. They said, tell us, when will these things be? When will the things that you just predicted about the destruction of the temple be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And everything we have been studying from chapter 24 to chapter 25 is Jesus answering that question. So it is a parable and it's in chapter 25. It's part of the Olivet Discourse and it's answering the question about the destruction of the temple. And the answer that Jesus gives, as we have seen, is it'll be destroyed within this generation, but you don't know the day or the hour, so stay awake. Look at chapter 24, verse 42. Context, it's, it's very important. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. And then he says in verse 44, Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. 
So the, the message that Jesus transitions to is that now that I've told you that it's coming and what sort of signs there will not be and what sort of signs there will be, now you have a general idea of what, when that's happening. So here's, here's the message. Be ready. Stay awake. Stay alert. You don't know when this is going to specifically come. It could be like, as verse 43 says, in the middle of the night, like a thief. So be ready. Or, as he says in chapter 24, verse 45 to 47, there's two kinds of servants. There's a blessed faithful servant who is very wise with the master's household, and he will be given more possessions. But woe to the wicked servant who mistreats the people and all of the possessions in the master's house because the master's been gone for a long time. Oh, this coming of the Son of Man, it's taking way too long. And the master was gone so long that the servant wondered, maybe this is just isn't happening anyway. So he treats these servants in the master's house and he takes care of the master's possessions with carelessness. And he says that servant will end up in a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Does that sound familiar to our story? Weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then in chapter 25, verses 1 through 13, there is a groom who went to get his bride and was gone for a long time. And there was five young girls who were wise and prepared for this delay. And there was five foolish girls who tried to prepare themselves at the very last minute and they missed out on the whole wedding party. In other words, you got two straight stories about somebody being gone for a while and the actions of a wise and ready servant or a wise and ready young woman or those who are foolish and not ready and wicked and the missing out. And so that's how verse 13 ends. Look at the end of the story that's just before ours. Watch therefore. And actually that word watch is, is literally stay awake. Wake up. For you don't know the day or the hour. Might it seem like he's still talking about this idea of the coming of the Son of Man. Be alert. Stay awake. You don't know when it might come. I'll give you a general idea, but not a specific time or day. Therefore, be ready. Be alert. That's the message that he's been giving. And then he says, for it will also be like this. In other words, we hear a third story for what it will be like. What it will be like is like a man going on a journey. And it says in verse 19 of our story that he'll be gone for a long time, which might make you start thinking, man, this guy's been gone a while. Is he ever actually going to come back? And he's a wealthy master. And that there's two kinds of servants. Even though there's three, there's really two kinds. There's the faithful kind, and then there's the unfaithful. And the faithful servants will be rewarded with more of the master's possessions, just like in the first story. And the unfaithful servants will be cast into outer, outer darkness, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so is, is it too much for me to say on this second point? Is it too strong to declare that if you hear somebody teach this story about the parable of the talents and they give very little time or attention to the stories that came before it and the story that comes after it, they give little immediate context to where it's placed, that you should basically just not listen to them. Is that it? Does that seem fair? Or like, no, that kind of makes a lot of sense. The story is situated in a series of stories. And it's saying a lot of the same things that the past stories were saying. So if your interpretation of the parable of the talents sounds a lot different or off, or feels like, oh, you know, I want to talk about money and investments. Let's just pull this story out of a whole series of stories and let's give a lecture on money. And this is what I mean by taking the Bible and giving the kind of wrong prescription with it. So step one, 
you need to first determine the genre. Step two, situate the context. Step three, define the key words. After you know what you're reading, after you know where it's at that you're reading it, third question, define the key words by knowing when are you reading this? Like literally, when are you reading this? You're reading it in the 21st century. You're reading it in an English a translation. And that means that you're going to hear words in this story that today are going to conjure up certain ideas or concepts. And they're not going to be the same as the Greek words that were in the first century. Case in point, let's take the key word of our story, the parable of the talents. What's a talent? Literally, what do you think of? What comes to mind when you hear the word talent? Answer? In English, the word talent means a skill, an ability, some sort of aptitude like singing, speaking in public, playing music, athletic skills, being a good salesperson, being a good teacher, an actor, a writer, a painter. That's what we think of when we hear the word talent. Is this what Jesus is talking about in his story? And the answer is, well, is that what the word means? So here's three options that I have for you. Actually, I have four for how to define a, a word. And you, you could do any of these. So, so step three is define your key terms. I'm going to give you four different options for how you could do that. Option number one, look for clues in the sentence for how the word is being used. This is just called let the context determine in the sentence how the word's used. So go back to our story. How is the word talent used in our story? Look at verse 15. To the one he gave five talents, to another two, and then to another one, and to each according to his ability. So if we define talent as natural abilities given to you by God, then you're saying, so there was this master and he gave them five abilities and he gave them each according to their abilities. That just doesn't make any sense. That's not what the word talent must mean then. Or if you look at verse 14, it says, this is a story about a man going on a journey, calling his servants and entrusting them to property. So what we know is that this talent is property in verse 14, that in verse 15, that it's each according to their own ability. Verse 16, that it's something that the one guy traded. So it's something that can be traded. Verse 17 says it's something that can be made more of or multiplied. Verse 18 says it's literally money that could be put into the ground. And verse 27 says it's money that could have been given to a banker. Well, at least if you're just going to read the story within its context, you'd say, sounds like talent is some kind of money. And in that case, you'd be much better off than the interpretation of God gives all of us natural abilities some of you have got skills to sing, so sing for Jesus. Like we're already off on the wrong course and you didn't even really carefully read the story. Option two, how can I define this key term? Look at it various translations because the Bible has been translated from Greek in the New Testament to English. And when you look at different translations in the English, they're all a wonderful gift. Most of them are very accurate and helpful. But every once in a while, when you look at the different translations, you'll see, oh, they translated this different. Maybe that highlights something and I need to look at it differently. So for example, this word is translated here, as you see in maybe your Bible, talent, or it's translated bags of gold. In another translation, bags of silver, 
or another 5,000 coins, another 5,000 gold coins, another $10,000. In other words, your options are money or talent. Those are all your English translations. Some sum of money or talent. And when you look at that, you might think, um, maybe it's money. Option three, go get a dictionary. And I don't mean an English dictionary. Get a lexicon, a Greek, English kind of lexicon dictionary and look up the word. And some of you may not have this resource, but I've tried to give you multiple options. So whatever option works best. But if you've got one of these dictionaries lying around, there's some online. There's ways to get this kind of information. Look up the word and you'll find that the Greek word for talent, you guys ready? Drum roll, please. This is big. It's talent. Were you expecting that? Literally, the word is talent. Here's a little insight. The translations that you have that translate this word talent did not translate the word. The Greek word is talent and it means something. It means a measure or a weight of some sort of metal, which is why you see bags of gold or bags of silver. So it's a measure, it's a weight of some sort. And in this case, it seems like it's a measure of some sort of money, a sum of money. But literally the word talent just means a unit of measurement about some amount of, you know, metals, silver, gold, bronze, whichever. And that's what the word means. So the Greek word is talent and our English word talent actually comes from this story and from the Bible's usage of talent, of natural aptitude or skills by the way people have used it in the teaching of the Bible. So then that begs the third and final question, which leads to our fourth option about defining this key term. What does Jesus mean? We know what the word means. Literally, it means a measurement of some sort of metal. And in the context, it's a measurement of, let's say, gold. And it's therefore referring to some kind of money. And it seems like a lot of money. Some, some people debate this. Uh, some will say it's as much as 20 years worth of your work, 20 years. Imagine your salary times it by 20, whatever that is, small or big, that's a lot of money. Would any of you be like, hey, I'd like a forward on the next 20 years of my work and I'd like it deposited into my account right now to do whatever I please with it. And all of you, I would think say, sign me up for that deal. So this guy is getting five talents. If a talent is 20 years, then that's five times 20 years worth of your work. We're talking like millionaire, billionaire kind of money if you go with that, other people think it's less. Either way, it's a generous sum of money. So is that all Jesus is talking about or could there be more? And that's when I would give you your fourth and final option for defining a key term. Use the author or the speaker to define the terms for you. Basically, you want to think, is there any other place where Jesus himself or Matthew, the guy who compiled this book, has used similar terms or phrases to help us to define what's going on in this story? And the answer, thankfully, is yes, he has. If you turn back to Matthew chapter 13, the central chapter of the book of Matthew, and I don't mean that like in terms of it's just significance, but it's the middle. It's, it's the dead center middle of the book is Matthew 13. And it's all about parables and it's why Jesus teaches in parables. And so that's already got ourselves going in the right direction. But right in the middle of that teaching, Jesus says in Matthew 13, verse 10, then the disciples came to Jesus and said, why do you speak to us in parables? And why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, well, to you, it has been given the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, 
it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. To put it another way, in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus explains that he is giving his disciples the secrets of the kingdom, and he's teaching in parables to hide that truth to those who have already rejected his plain teaching. Go back to the Matthew 13 section of the series in our sermon series of Matthew, and you'll hear me explain that at length if you're wondering, huh? Jesus teaches parables to hide things from people so they don't understand what he's saying? Yes, exactly. But to his disciples, those that submit to him and follow him, he tells them exactly what his parables mean. He explains them the meaning of them, and he gives them the secrets of the kingdom because they've come with humble, penitent, repentant hearts. He's giving them insider knowledge that not everyone else will have. And he later says that these secrets are valuable. They're like a precious pearl. They're so valuable, they're like a treasure that you would sell everything you have to get that treasure. That's what the secrets of the kingdom are like. So I think one way to understand our story is to use scripture to interpret scripture, to let Jesus interpret Jesus. And in this case, I think it seems best to understand the talents as an amazing gift from God, a gift none other than the very message of the gospel of the kingdom of God entering into the world, the secrets of what Jesus has come to do and has done and will do. But even if that's not exactly what Jesus has in mind, we should hopefully know what a talent is not by now. It is not your special skills or abilities or aptitude to do certain things. Although that might be a generally true thing that you've been skilled and gifted in certain ways, so use them for the kingdom of God. I think that that's like a third, fourth, fifth point down the line. That's not the main idea of our text. So let's put it all together. Step four. We've asked the questions, what are you reading? Determine the genre. We've asked the question, where are you reading? Situate the context. I've asked the question, when are you reading? Define the key terms. Step four. How are you reading? Put it all together. Now synthesize this material and come up with a big idea. So what we know is that Jesus is telling a cryptic story about the kingdom of heaven. What we know is that he's telling a story in order to prepare his disciples, because he's not talking to outsiders, he's talking to insiders, and that this story is to prepare his disciples for the coming of the Son of Man. What we know is that this story is the third straight story about a master or a groom or some figure that's going away and taking a long time till he comes back. It's the third straight story that contrasts the behavior of the faithful and the wicked, the wise and the foolish, those who are ready and those who find themselves surprised upon his return. It's the third straight story with rewards and punishments as the end result. So the big idea of our story, be ready for the master's return by being responsible over the long haul with the generous gifts he has given, namely, the secrets of the kingdom of God. Or to put it simple, the big idea of this story is readiness means responsibility. Readiness means reliability, trustworthiness. The way the gifts of the master work in this story is that they're meant to multiply. Gains and losses in the kingdom of heaven are always compounding realities. So if you're responsible and you're reliable, then you will receive, not rest, 
Not relaxation, not eternal pleasure of endless golf in heaven. What you will receive is more responsibility, more secrets of the kingdom. If you're lazy and you're wicked, even what you do have will be taken away. So step five, we've put it all together. We've got a big idea. The story is about readiness. It's about responsibility and reliability. It's getting his disciples ready for the master's return. He's going to be gone for a while and they need to get themselves ready. And you and I, we're living in a similar time. Jesus has left. He has ascended into heaven. He will return. So then let's apply this to our lives. That's the fifth and final step. Once you know what it's saying and you put it all together, apply it to your life. So here's my question for you. Why are you reading the Bible? Step five. Why are you reading the Bible? How are you going to apply this to your life? Many people come to church or read the Bible because they want some lessons about how to live better. One of the best-selling Christian books in the last, and, and Christian I say very loosely, Christian books is your best life now. The Bible is just a book to give you tips and lessons to how to invest your money for your, your best life now financially. Somewhat the the spiritual lessons to learn how to achieve your goals. You know, you're, you're going along in life and you feel like, I just need something else, a little boost, a little something. All right, I'm, let's try religion. Let's try the Bible. Let's try Jesus. I'm not changing my goals. I'm not changing the outlook of my life. I'm using Jesus in the Bible so that way it will help me to get further along with my dreams and visions. Some people come to the Bible because they want a positive, uplifting message. And they think, ah, Christianity, the Bible, it's been a hard week. It's been a hard year. Oh, 2020. Could it get any worse? November hasn't come yet. Just wait, right? Who knows? And so we go to church because we want something positive and uplifting to keep our head up for another day or another week. Some people want to come to church and they want to read the Bible because they basically just want, like, tell me how to not go to hell. You know, I just don't want that. That sounds bad. And it is. But that's really all they're thinking about is, how do I get saved? So what are you trying to get out of it? Why are you reading the Bible? And how might this question really influence the way every day you read it, every time you come to church, how you approach sermons and teaching and the word of God? It's a big one. All of these, they kind of build off of each other. I suggest that the Bible is first and foremost about God. The Bible is a book about God. So answer the question, why are you reading the Bible? Hopefully the answer is, I want to get to know God. I want God. This is one of the things as a pastor, I just don't know if I'm going to get over. And if I do, I think you should get a new pastor. I want to give you God every week. That's what I'm thinking about when I'm studying the Bible. I want to offer to you the character and the glory and the beauty of our God made flesh in the person of Jesus. I don't know if you've noticed this, but every week I try and finish and end the message reminding you of what our God is like through the gospel message of Christ. So that you see him, so you behold him, so that you're in awe of this God. And that as you do so, you'll say, wow, he's good. I like him. I want to worship him. I want to follow him. This is worth spending my time on. And this is the thing I can't stand about the American shift of church. It's so consumed with you. 
There's a me-centeredness about the Bible. I want me, me, me. What do I learn about me? What do you learn about God? How about that? Come to the Bible for him. So let's do that. Let's finish this story thinking about what it teaches us about our God. What we learn in this story is that God is wealthy. He is the rich master, filthy rich. Whatever kind of sum of money it is, it's a decent chunk of change, and he is just doling out five talents, two talents, one talent. He owns it all. It's all his. If there's one thing all three servants have in common, it's that when you read the story, you notice that they all know that the talents are not theirs. Are you, my friend, living as if everything that is yours is actually not yours, but you are a steward temporarily dealing with the master's talents? God is not an overbearing taskmaster in the story. He entrusts his possessions to his people and asks them to be faithful and responsible, and he rewards those with greater responsibility. In other words, one lesson you can take away from this about God and heaven is that heaven is not going to be feasting on all your fleshly pleasures, like I mentioned earlier. Eternal golf and endless delicacies at a big, rich table of foods and mansions. Instead, it is about the active cooperation with the purposes of God in his enjoyment and favor forever. This rich generous God shares and entrusts his possessions. And it says, enter into the joy of his master. He is not begrudgingly doing this. He is filled with joy and happiness. Enter into the joy of your master. Is that what you think about when you think about God? A.W. Tozer, the former pastor in the Chicago area, he said, the most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. Do you think joy? You think this God is filled with joy and love and generosity, that all of it's his, but he's not hoarding it for himself. Even though the master goes away, he is not a distant, far off or uninvolved God. He cares. He comes back. He wants to settle accounts. He will make sure that you will be responsible for what he has given you. Do not think of him in his absence as distant and far off and just spinning the world into order and saying, all right, have at it, humanity. He's a God who gets near, who comes in and dwells. He's a God who wants to be with us, God with us. He's a God who rewards, who rewards those who are faithful. He rewards their faithfulness, not just what they can accomplish, not just the results of their labor, isn't it interesting to see that the same guy that had five talents and the other guy that had two talents both heard the exact same response from the master. Well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the master. Your calling as a servant to this God is not a certain level of production, certain level of things that you must accomplish. That, my friends, is devastating and literally damning. This God says, I know exactly how much is enough for you. I know you. I'm intimately involved with you. And I am only going to hold you accountable to what I know that you can handle. That's what this God is like. This God knows 
Every situation that you have gone through has sovereignly allowed it. And as Charles Spurgeon has beautifully said, it's hanging on the wall in our house. Had not any other condition been better for you than the one that you are currently in, then his divine love would have not put you there. It's a really good quote. I got to say it again. Had any other condition been better for you than the one in which you are, divine love would not have put you there. Is that your view of God? It's not the view of God by the third servant. The entire story turns and hinges when the third servant, unlike the other two, says the very first words out of his mouth. I know this about you, God. I know this about you, Master. I know that you are a hard man. That you reap where you do not sow. He's a wicked and hard man. He steals from others. What is the fundamental problem of the third servant? What is the root underneath of his actions? Theology, doctrines, beliefs about God. The third servant's view of God is the reason he acts the way he does. He thinks he's harsh. He thinks he's the only, the kind of master that cares about results and success. He thinks that he's a cheat and breaks the rules. And ultimately, the third servant's afraid of him. And I don't mean the healthy kind of fear and awe of God that we talk about the fear of the Lord. I mean afraid of him. And I think the way to read this story is to realize that the master is saying, so if that's your view of me, then you still didn't act very wisely. I don't think in any way he's saying, that's right, I am a hard man. Some people want to read it that way. So friends, do you realize that the Bible teaches that perfect divine love casts out our fears? That it is the kindness of God that leads you to repentance and draws you near. It is the kindness of God that draws you to repentance. So what's your view of God? And as we do every week, do you view him as one who became nothing, hanging on a cross, dying in your place for your sins? How generous is this God? He won't hold a single thing back that you need. He will give everything even if it costs his life. There is nothing that we can do to add to or improve what he has already given. His gift is in a generous wealth, not just of money, but of something such of greater value. He gives his life himself. Come to the Bible for God, for Jesus, and receive Jesus. Be drawn to his love, his divine love, to know you and know exactly what you're going through right now and know that he's going to walk with you through his spirit, that he gives you himself. So I want to encourage each and every one of you right now, wherever you're at in your life, wherever you're going through, come to him especially if you're weary and heavy laden. Find rest for your soul. Come to him, repent of your sins and turn to him. Why? Because he is kind and he is generous and he is good and he is joyful. And there is no better thing you could do than to be urged and plotted, prodded and, and pushed to say, come, receive him. 
And may the view of God spur on to you all of the faithfulness that is required. I don't even think I need to go on explaining all of the different ways we need to be faithful. All you really, really need is a vision of him. And when you get that and you hold on to that, no matter how bad things are, no matter what temptations are luring you away, when you see him the way he truly is, then and only then will you be faithful. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we want to come now in the name of your Son, Jesus, and we want to pray for your Spirit to illumine the eyes of our darkness and shine the light of the glory of the face of Christ in our eyes, that we would see you for who you truly are. I pray that we would not be like this third servant and that our view of you would just be a harsh dictating master that only cares about profits and losses, good deeds and bad deeds. Help us to see your love, your knowledge, your wisdom, your kindness, your beauty, your justice, your wrath, your mercy. May we know who you are and what you are like. And help us, Father, to do this so that we will bear amazing multiplying fruit in our lives every day. To the sake of your name, for the glory of your name. Amen.